Do The Science Shamans podcast producer Trent here. This episode is a recording of the live show that we do every Sunday at 10am on our YouTube channel, Alive Science Q&A. So bear that in mind when you are listening. If you're listening to this as the podcast version, there might be a couple of little blips or dropouts or something like that uh, that you get with doing a live stream show. But hopefully that won't impact your enjoyment. And also should note that uh, Robin will go through this at the start of the show as well that this is the last of our weekly live shows. Uh, we'll still be doing live Q&As on our YouTube channel on a Sunday, uh, just not weekly anymore. They'll be kind of maybe once a month, but lots of other stuff will still be coming out each and every Sunday. So keep an eye on the podcast feed for different stuff on a Sunday beyond the live show, interviews with different scientists, some more in-depth answers uh, and videos and stuff around some of the questions we set, get sent in with Helen and others. So for this final episode, it's just Robin and Helen dealing with all the leftover questions. Well, not all, we didn't even get to them all uh, that we get sent in each week for Helen. Thanks for our Patreon supporters. Thanks to everyone that has tuned in to the 70 plus shows we've done over the past 18 months on a Sunday. Hope you enjoy this. Good morning. Welcome to Sunday Science Q&A and uh, it's the Helen Chersky special. Uh, and uh, the reason that we're doing this, one of the many reasons is because we always end up with a huge number of questions for Helen. And sometimes, we're, especially like, for instance, last week when we were doing the COVID one, it was quite hard to kind of uh, go off from that, that subject. So we've now collated all well we hope anyway i'm sure there might be other people who go hang on a minute my question wasn't there and i asked it back on june the 12th 2020 um also another thing that we're doing is we are now going to we've done 70 uh of these live shows um because things continue to change and uh i think two things one is obviously people's online watching habits are changing and returning to perhaps the way it was uh pre-pandemic they do remember the pandemic's not over and uh please do keep wearing masks by the way thank you very much everyone out there who is still wearing masks on public transport and in shops etc it is uh for a lot of people that i know some of whom have uh health conditions some of whom are pregnant and some of whom like me are people who are self-employed and have been waiting a very, very long time to go back to work. And uh, now that we are back to work, we would like to stay in work, please. So thank you for all those people who, uh, and I do realise it's a lot of people aren't wearing masks, not because it's some kind of grand gesture, that, but just because um, they kind of think, oh, it seems to be reasonably over and everything's, but um, yeah, check the figures and all of those kind of things. And I think any of you out there with children will probably know that uh it's it's not good good in schools at the moment so anyway that was another little detour um uh so yeah we've done 70 of these shows and uh, things are uh changing now so we we're now we're we're still going to do some sunday science q a's live i i think at least once a month uh but uh, we're not going to do them every single Sunday, but we are going to try and make sure that every single Sunday there is new science content. I'm doing a bunch of interviews with um, scientists who have books out or new research. And uh, so some weekends at 10 a.m. we'll be putting out a couple of interviews with scientists about what they're up to. Um, and uh, Helen may well go off and do, we'll film some experiments, some things that you've said. Again, if, you, if there's anything in particular you'd like us to investigate, um, send in those ideas because what we're going to do 
is make some uh, short films where we will look at some of the questions about the universe uh, and the world around us, which is part of the universe, a subset of the universe. Uh, um, and uh, and we'll make some short films about that kind of thing. So there's still going to be pretty much every Sunday some science stuff. But Sunday Science Q&A Live is kind of not going to uh, be quite so much. Now, this week's uh, book shambles, I have to mention, uh, well, I always have to mention it, obviously, because uh, this is the plug part of the show. But Catherine Mannix is fantastic. And uh, some of you might have uh, read her book about dealing with death, um, which is very beautifully written. And her latest book, Listen, is about how we need to learn different techniques of how we listen to people who are experiencing trauma uh, or loss or whatever it, it might be. And uh, I interviewed her for Book Shambles and it was a really just a uh, she, she's got such compassion and humanity. So if you get a chance and especially at this time, of course, where sometimes you know, the amount of trauma people are dealing with we, can be at peak times here. Uh, I think Catherine is a voice really worth listening to. And then next week uh, will be uh, Book Shambles is this this book, uh, which I have thoroughly enjoyed, it's Francesca Stavrakopoulou, and it is her book, God and Anatomy, which is all about the physical existence of, of God in the Bible, where, amongst other things, he's doing things like uh, battling an, an, an aqueous sea dragon and uh, all manner of lurid and strange things. And uh, But but from the Bible, things that are, are very often passed over uh, to turn him into a kind of ethereal being. But that is a fantastic book. So we're talking about Francesca Stavrakopoulou for next week's book, Shambles. And finally, you can... Uh, pre-order uh, signed copies of The Importance of Being Interested, my new book, which comes out on the 7th of October. And I can also do dedicated versions. If you go to the cosmicshambles.com, uh, if you go to that site and you go to our shop, you will find that there are ways of ordering that. So probably in the next week, I will be able to do any dedicated copies uh, of, of the book. And from the 7th of October as well, I'm travelling uh, across the UK. Very likely I'll be coming to a town near you because I'm doing, I think, 111 events in two months, and uh, which start on Tuesday, I'll be in Wigtown, and then uh, next weekend I'm doing four different events in uh, Larne in Wales, which is uh, a beautiful festival as well. And then I go on and on and on. Anyway, there you are. Good morning, Helen. Hello. Um, you are this morning. I feel like I've, I've got into this habit of commenting, making put not not quite personal comments about you. But this morning it's your elbows because you're leaning into the camera. Your elbows are very dominant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 because I've got um if I, I, there you see see there's yes. there's books there and there's books there and uh, I've 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 now it, it's like that bit of yourself anymore the, the comedian who leans on the uh, I'll tell you another one ladies and gentlemen it's, <laughs> it's 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 that kind of look yeah my, my dominant well I've got I think I've still got reasonably smooth elbows for a man of my age you know Helen so obviously. I, I find whatever is left of me that is not in total decrepitude and point it towards the camera. Feature, make it your your, your best elbow side. Yeah. Uh, well. These are the soft elbows of someone who's not worked hard <laughs> enough in the fields. Um, uh, I, I'm very well. I, I've been away uh, over, uh, over out, out and about, I guess, uh, hopefully lots of people have had a little bit of out and about before the winter and the weather arrives. So I did go out and about and Loch Ness last week. I know I mentioned this then, but it was it was an enormous privilege to paddle down the lock when the weather was good. Um, I'm still I was there three days later and uh, the weather was terrible and we could have had to paddle for three and a half hours down that lock in the driving rain. And I am intensely glad uh, that the weather didn't do that to us. So, yeah. So I'm I'm back and bouncing, basically. And this. Can week, I just ask you, because you mentioned that you're doing Monster the Lock weekend. It's of you do so many of these kind of uh, outside endurancey things. Are there any that you've just gone? That's enough of this. 
let's just get off our bicycles <laughs> or out of our canoes or whatever it might be. We're not going on anymore. Um, I usually make a decision before it gets to that. Before, if once you're there, I reckon you've probably got to do it. But um, there are definitely things that I've hesitated. Like I've never run a marathon. I've done half marathons. I haven't got the patience. The, the, the thing that stops me training for a marathon is that I'm not sure. Like you're, like you're usually these days. You. you can't have um, earphones for safety because you obviously need to be able to hear what's going on around you so you just have to have to think about nothing very much for three hours three and a half hours whatever it is and um that I, I i i would just be bored at the end of a half marathon like i'm physically a bit tired but i'm like bored now um so funny enough in the canoes i don't notice that so i've never i've never given up halfway through but i definitely um i don't go out in all weathers i'm i'm a bit of a worse in the rain but it's interesting isn't it when you think about looking back on the bits of the past year that we can remember last winter i was out running in the dark every morning um and i just did it because i had to so it's interesting that our you know you do well if i wanted exercise i had to so there's a lot in this about our views towards discomfort which is a learned thing you know if you have the right gear and if you're used to doing it you just do it and that was what I did last winter and i think you know i hope we all spend a lot more time outdoors i would love i i know there's a some neighbors don't like their local cafes having tables outside because it's noisier and all of that kind of stuff but i love i would love the british to get more used to the outdoors instead of hiding away from it like you know put on an extra coat and be outside i think that would be good for all of us um you know and it because it, we're, we're so good at separating ourselves from nature and i think we need to get you know just just be outside um and don't be afraid of the outside i think that's a good thing so yeah so i'm i'm not I'm still a bit of a wuss sometimes, definitely, but I I do try because I think, you know, I'm waterproof. It is the nature of human skin that it is generally waterproof. So, uh, you know, as long as I'm not cold, really, really cold, I'll I'll give it a go. So yes. And what have you got for us this week? Have you got a, a week in science? Well, so I've got a show and tell, but it's a show and tell that came from. Um, questions because there are three pictures behind me that have been on the wall ever since January this year and I don't think I've ever told everyone what they are so that is going to be my show and tell this week I'm going to tell you about these pictures um now can you shall I bring them or sh can you see them well enough I think bring them if possible I think that would be great um so this one now where do I have to put this let's see yeah that's good that's that's oh, great before I get going on these, so they're all from the Natural History Museum. Um, the next two are from the Wildlife Photographer of the World of the Year Award, uh, but this one, this one's just a picture from their gallery. So everyone can buy these at the Natural History Museum. So this one's a, a turtle. But what's interesting about I'm just going to turn my microphone around a bit. What's interesting about the turtle is it's got these fish on it. It's a green sea turtle. Um, but what they're doing is they're feeding off it. They're cleaning it, grooming it. Uh, so there's algae and bacteria and you know bits and pieces that are just growing on the turtle shell because it's a good place to live and so you do get fish that just come along and you know graze on it so that's what's going on here um, I'm not quite sure that I think they're a type of butterfly fish but I'm not sure some fish expert might tell me um, and you can see in the bottom corner here this reef so when you're diving under under the water um, the red light gets absorbed by the water very quickly so everything looks kind of greeny blue if you shine a torch on it it often comes up really bright colors but this is the kind of background that kind of color of a reef uh, is what you see underwater and the deeper it goes the bluer it gets so so that's the turtle um, i'm not gonna be able to put it back now
The I'll nice thing is because you're doing this with an audience, they'll all be able to instruct you on how to make sure the pictures are all straight at the yeah, end. Oh, hang on, that's like just a little bit more to the left, a little bit more to the left. One's, that one's oh. gone somewhere slightly <laughs> weird. Now this one, this is my favourite. This is the one I got first um, before I decided that uh, I need, it needed some friends. So it's a big fin reef squid. And the thing, there are, there are two things that are amazing about this picture. One of them is that it's just a beautiful squid. Um, it was probably about 20 centimetres long. It's obviously taken in the dark. It's not actually bioluminescing. It's just got a torch shining on it. And this is a mating display. So it's got these amazing colours that would have been running up and down its body. And so it's a beautiful picture. The other thing that, about this picture, which is amazing, is that it was taken by someone who was under 14. It won the Young Photographer of the Year Award in uh, 2016, I think. Um, and this this uh, child, who must be an adult now, had only been, I think, diving. They, they passed their diving qualification at 10. They were lucky enough to be taken somewhere where you get to see this kind of thing. And yes, they won the 11 to 14 year old category that year. But um I just I love this picture. Um, I just love the colours on it. I love squids and cephalopods and um, all those kinds of things. As you all know, I'm a big fan of that that category. That's that one. <laughs> Shall I just? Yeah, leave no, them? keep it like that. Keep it like that. I like. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Um, now this one, this one is, um, and it needs something to go with it. So. This one is the one that confuses everyone. This is the one that the Shambles audience have asked about. And what it is, it's called Spiral. Um, I think it was in the photography thing in, also in 2019, not sure. Now this, if you were to guess what this is, it would take a long time, I think, because what this is, is a worm. Uh, it's a type of worm, uh, a bristle worm or a polychaete, which is, it's a class of worms that are all over the ocean. They're amazing. But they're very odd <laughs> to our eyes. They've got a head and a tail and then they've got segments in between and the segments have bristles and sticky out bits. And so the worm is underneath. It's very small. It's probably about two and a half centimetres across. The worm is all underneath somewhere burrowed into the coral. And this bit that's sticking out is effectively both its lungs and its mouth. So all these frondy bits in this kind of spiral thing are both filtering for food, filtering ocean water for food, and they're also allowing it to exchange oxygen across its surface. Um, and this, this, so it's a beautiful picture, but and I was actually made, somebody very kindly made me, this is a Christmas tree worm, which is mm -hmm. a similar, it's also a polychaete, but it's got this worm bit underneath and then it's got these little bits that stick up and that's what we're looking at. It's one of those that we're looking at in the picture. So um, what's the scale of that then? What's what's actually the size of it? So I, I don't know. I think it's about two centimetres across. I think if right. you were to measure from one side of the picture to another, that's two centimetres across. And anyone listening to the podcast, uh, just look up Christmas tree worms and polychaetes <laughs> and then you will find one of those. But the amazing thing, I, I'm going to put this back and I'll tell you something else about polychaetes. This is the worst art exhibition in the world. Look at that now. <laughs> I'm afraid that we cannot return your pictures in the words of uh, Tony Hart. <laughs> so there are there are lots of polychaetes throughout the ocean, which is this type of segmented worm. But and they are like, you know, evolution just doesn't it just does whatever works. Right. So one of the things that one species of this worm does is, you know, the, the worm itself lives at the bottom and it needs to get up to the top to mate. So what it does is its tail grows its own eye, break, takes the sperm or the eggs, 
breaks off, swims up to the surface, and when it gets to the surface, it bursts and it releases the sperm and the eggs. And they all do that on the same day of the lunar month. Um, and the worm down below just grows another tail. And next time it's time to mate, that tail grows itself a little proto-eye, swims up to the surface and bursts. And, and it can produce several of these in its lifetime. So there is a type of polychaete that reproduces like that, which is just, um, I mean, it basically sends off uh, like a little, almost a little spaceship, a little emissary into, into the mating world that's not going to come back. It's a suicide mission that will generate the next generation. It's amazing. Bit mad. I, f I find those it, it's like in Nicola Rahaney's uh bushel instinct where you know the number of living creatures that have uh you know suicide is required for the survival of the whole so you know these these kind of you know ants for instance that will basically you know that, that when all the ants at night go into there and they, and they fill in the hole from the outside and then they know they have to trudge off where they will then die uh, because if they if they die too even if they die too near the nest then that means there'll be a hit what's in there and so they then take a walk and then they die in some distance which is just you know and, and the number of animals that have that kind of existence which is very in one way it is i think for a human being it's a very bleak thing to be reminded that life exists to create more life to create more life to create more life and what is the purpose will they be creating some art no they'll just be creating some more life and life and life it's like that thing about um a chicken, um, a chicken just being an egg's way of making another egg. Yeah. Um, it's it's such a, it's like it's just your as long as the genetics carries on, it's all all right. That you know that's that's what you're after. So, but we're very narrow-minded in our view of you know. I, I think I think it's really interesting when I mean, and I just did it then that we describe these things as weird or amazing or bonkers, and you're like, no, no, no. What that's saying is weird. We've got a very narrow view. And the rest of the world is just getting on with it. And we think our thing is normal because we've got these blinkers on. And actually, you know, why not? If that's what, if that's what works for evolution, you know, it's not weird. It, it's a, it works. So that's OK. That's kind of the but, test. But one, one, try and ignore a lot of what nature tells you to do and, you know, rise above it or rise to the side of it or whatever way you want to look at it and do something else. That's what Darwin said, didn't he? Which is, you know, this is one of the battles of being human is that it's not to say when well, nature tells us. And we always see this on Twitter and all those places where people will go, but nature says this or science says this. And you go, well, we're an odd creature. We're a strange creature. <clears throat> and sometimes we have to say, well, nature does say this, but I'm going to go and do that instead well it's like we choose we get to choose i mean the, the i talk a lot about the earth as an engine that you know we get energy from the sun and that you know we borrow it for a bit atoms go round and round but but we have a we are different because we get to choose how we how we are part of that engine you know the, the polychaete worm just has to um it doesn't have a choice it just does what it does whereas we have some we can choose what part of cog in the machine we are and that that is what makes us different a little bit well, I'm glad to say that anyway, Evan's question and Evan was he was desperate to know what the middle picture was, because obviously that's always where your head has been. Evan, I hope you have now got all the answers you needed for uh, those pictures. Now we're going to go through. We've got loads of questions. We'll see how many we can get through. And uh, just a quick reminder, of course, uh, if any of you uh, who don't already, I know a lot of you supporters via Patreon. If you are able to support us via uh, Patreon, go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. This is not obviously the only thing we make. We make lots of other shows as well in our tips for existence series continues to uh go out as well we've just about the end of another of, of the third series of that um so thank you very much you can help with that and also coming up uh next monday uh at 
seven thirty uh, p.m. Uh, British Summer Time. Uh, I'm in conversation with Tim Minchin. So if you get a chance, seven thirty uh, next Monday, uh, I'll be talking to Tim Minchin. Now here we go. Then question number one uh, or question number two. Because this is like an exam. We are now. We've done the preliminaries. Now you'll it's get the through exam. these. I think you're going to be fine on these. Um, Alison, age six, would like to know why can you sometimes see the moon in the daytime? And I think that's very interesting. That is a, it's one of those things that you just pass over because, oh, well, there it is again. But it's faster and, and sometimes the most fascinating time to look at it as well. Well, yeah, so you can see. So the moon is just going round and round the Earth and um, the sun illuminates from our point of view. Sometimes if if the sun, if it's the sun and then the Earth and then the moon is behind, but not exactly behind, then all of the moon is illuminated. Uh, and then you can only see it at night because it's round the back of the Earth. So you definitely can't see it during the day. Um, but if it's if it's the sun and then the moon and then the Earth, because the moon has come around the other side, um, the moon actually isn't lit to us at all. So you'd only get maybe a little sliver down the side of light. So in either of those two cases, you, you can't see it during the day. But if it's off to either side, then half of it will be illuminated. Um, and it's light comes from the, so, so there's kind of a, a right angle. So there's the sun and there's a line that comes to the earth and then you sort of go off sideways and the moon is somewhere over there. Um, and so it's half lit by the moon, by the sun. And if the sky is, um, hasn't got very much light coming from it. So remember the sky is blue because there's scattering of light in the atmosphere. So it's a bit like seeing the atmosphere. So if there isn't, if there aren't any clouds in the way, in the way and if you aren't if there isn't so much light coming from the rest of the atmosphere then you're getting extra light from the moon and because it's brighter than what's around it then you can see it if it was dimmer than the sky around it then you wouldn't be able to see it so you can see it when it's brighter than the sky around it because it stands out Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Joe Sem says, uh, I've just watched how sound can be used to map the ocean. I was wondering if it would be possible to take a still sound photo and turn it into a visual photo and how accurate it would be at any given moment. Would a snapshot show a fish species, current plant life and the cr create a sort of diorama? Uh, yeah, so this actually does happen a lot, and this is what sonar does. It sends sound. Sonar does. It sends sound into the ocean, and there's different ways that sonars can work. So they're based. A sonar device is kind of like a torch and a camera for sound instead of light. So it sends out some sound, which is like a torch shining light, and then it measures what comes back. And you can have sonar that just does that for a single point. Um, so you can measure the depth of the ocean by measuring how long the sound takes to go down and come back. But actually, uh, what you can also do is sweep that beam, like sweeping a searchlight in front of you, and then you can build up a picture. And so ships have this quite commonly. And, and the thing, what's interesting is that it's not just that sound bounces back, it's how long it takes, because the length of time it takes um, tells you how far away it is. So you can absolutely build up pictures using sonar. And actually, this is done all the time. So uh, even fishing, so it's how the ocean, it's how oceanographers now measure the depth of the ocean as we're in a ship passing uh, over the ocean. There's a, a thing called a multi-beam sonar attached to the hull of the ship that is, it's 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 giving you a little picture of the ribbon of, of seafloor that you're passing over all the time. Um, but also fish finders. So fishing vessels, one of the things that did actually contribute to uh, overfishing is that fishing vessels can send out uh, sound and fish, um, 
species, some species of fish, the, the bony fish, have a little air bubble inside them called a swim bladder that helps adjust to their uh, buoyancy. And they that thing is really visible to sound. It, it shines out like, a, you know, it's really visible in the sound world. So basically, if you want to find fish, you know, sardines, for example, something like that, it's a big shoal of them. Uh, you, you go out in your fishing boat, you've got this fish finder, which you can buy on Amazon. You know, they're very common. And as you go over a big shoal of fish, you're looking at an image and you will see not every individual fish necessarily, but you'll see a big thing in the water column and you'll know that that's where the fish are. So it's actually been helping fishermen find shoals of fish for a long time now, so the 50 or 60 years, I think. Um, so yes, we do this all the time. And it's a little bit harder to make very precise images because the way sound travels in the ocean the very, very high notes don't travel very far. And so, but the very, very deep notes, you can only see things in quite a blurry way. You can't see really sharp edges. So there is a bit of a trade-off, but absolutely. And and just finally, um, I did visit a few years ago, uh, there is an archeological site off Dunwich, I think, in off the Norfolk coast. Someone's going to tell me it's Essex and not Norfolk or something like no, that. No, Suffolk, if it's anything, it's Suffolk, yeah. I'm not sure. One of those, somewhere out there, <laughs> somewhere out to the east. Um, but there's an archaeological site underwater. But the North Sea is really full of particles. So you can't see anything. If you shine a torch, you can't see your hand if you put it right in front of the torch. So we were out there with divers who had very unusual setup. They had really big, heavy iron boots so they could actually stand on the seafloor. But then instead of having a mask, they had on their chest, they had a sonar. So they were kind of a bit like a dolphin. Um, and, and that sonar on their chest sent out... Um, sound and it bounced back and then into their goggles they could see an image a blurry image but they could see an image of what was ahead and they were looking for this archaeological site this submerged church a bit like a dolphin would echo sound so so it, it does exist it's never going to be it's never quite as good as light but it does work uh who's 10 hello leroy would like to uh know could you make a plane with wings that flap like a bird? Now, of course, for, they used to show this footage all the time when I was growing up, those early footages, uh, early footage of uh, people trying to fly 100 metres or whatever, and you'd, you'd have these kind of flapping machines that would go. So, so is that possible? It's an idea. So I think Leonardo da Vinci, so he said Leonardo da Vinci, so he said he, um, this is a great idea because it was, but it was thought up by a great mind. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, I think, had made a model of, or some thought about trying to make flapping wings that would, um, that would propel something. Because if you don't know much about flight, it looks mostly like the flying is done by the flapping. Um, whereas the gliding is actually more important in being able to fly. But anyway, um, so people have tried this. And the thing is, it's just not very efficient. So birds obviously do it and they do it very well. Um, but birds are kind of flexible. <laughs> and so it's a bit easy. It's a bit easier to adjust where if you want to make something that's got structural strength enough to carry a load of people and it's probably got to be made of metal, um, you need something a bit more rigid and it's hard to make that deform in the same way. And basically it's much more efficient just to have an aerofoil, which is a, um, a fixed wing, a, a fixed wing in the sense that it's a, um, it's just a big metal shape. And the way you get lift is you, you force it forward and the shape of the aerofoil gives you lift. So actually if you've got a really heavy thing and especially something made of metal and especially something where you can't, 
you know, flexibly control every aspect of it, efficient to, to use a plane, but it would be possible to do it just really inefficient. And you, you have to be really light to fly like that. Uh, so most things that are a big glide, like an albatross, for example, it gets itself up and it, it's not particularly pretty flyer, but then it's really good at gliding. Um, and it's the gliding that takes it a long way. I love where, where, where I live. Where I live, there's been a big, you know, red kite breeding program, which, of course, have been hugely successful. But one of those ones that's so successful, you imagine they're now going to start a culling program before long. Uh, but, it, no, it's fantastic. And, and it is a beautiful thing to watch the way that they can just hover and thinking yeah. about the mechanism of that. Um, uh, oh, should we go straight into quantum computing? Are you ready to answer a quantum? Let's let's go with this. Uh, Raul would like to know, I've seen a lot of headlines lately about quantum computing. Can someone give a quick 101 on what this is? And that someone is you, Helen. <laughs> the problem with this is that there is one very simple answer, which doesn't make much sense, generally speaking, to most people. And then beyond that, we don't know how to do it yet. So here's the, here's the quick answer. The quick answer is that all computing up to this point has been done in you have a zero or you have a one and you have a, a bit that switches from zero to one and it can only be in one of those two states but in the quantum world you've got things like superposition and entanglement this weird world of quantum where if you put two atoms or two um particles near each other they until you look at them they can be in a mixture of states they can maybe, you know, what the what happens to one of them depends on what happens to the other. And actually, Carlo Rovelli's recent book, um, I think it's Helgoland. the one before. Is it Helgoland or is it the one before that? Maybe it is Helgoland. Helgoland is the one that, that that's, that's got yes, quite a lot of quantum stuff right. in it, yeah. It is Helgoland. So he talks a lot about the meaning of, of um, entanglement and things like that. But anyway, the point is that you've got this mixed state. So those atoms, until you look at them in the right way, they're not either zero or one. There's some probability of them being something in between. And that lets you do, it potentially lets you compute things in a different way. Now, there's some things that are quite important about quantum computing. One of them is that it can't compute anything that can't be computed by a normal computer, but it could potentially for some types of problem do it much, much, much more quickly, um, sometimes less than the age of the universe, which is quite important. So um, so so it's not that they can do it's not that they can do everything better. It's that they might, if we can make them work, do do some things much more quickly. And um, the, the thing is that no one there's various schemes for making this work. They all depend on this really sensitive system and keeping track of these atoms, which are, you know, you've got to watch them in the right way. You've got to hold on to them in the states that they're in. It's really difficult to do it for more than one bit at a time. And um, I think Google did claim that they had done something in 2019, but that no public data has been made available to show whether it worked or it didn't. So so basically it's a theoretical concept which could work, but the practicalities are really, really hard and, and those haven't been worked out yet and I suppose may never be worked out. But people do think it would work if we could control it, uh, if we could make it work, you know. So it's not a very good answer, I'm afraid. But if you look at quantum computing, I mean, it is a bit like that. There's this principle, which is that you don't have to have either zero or one. But after that, everything is still up for grabs. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, Nicole would like to know, Nicole, who's aged eight, hello. Uh, why can't we use seawater to water our gardens? Oh, it's a, it's a really counterintuitive answer um, because it would dry them out. It's the same reason that seafarers can die at sea from dehydration, even though they are surrounded by the, you know, they could be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. You can still die from dehydration. And 
salt is a very salt plays a very important role in um, cell the cells of all living things and how they work. So inside uh, the inside of a cell is a little bit salty. Um, it's about nine uh, on the salinity scale when the ocean is 35, something like that. So it's so it's, you know, perhaps about a quarter as salty as the ocean. But the salt in the cell does this really important thing is that a cell doesn't just have buckets. It can't just move water in and out. So in order to control the water, where whether the water is crossing from the inside to the outside of the cell, um, what it does is it controls ions uh, and those are salt. So basically for the purposes of this, that's that's like salt. And so what happens is that to get salt across the boundary of the cell, the cell has to move it. It has to definitely put it there. But if it moves lots of salt to one side, say, say inside the cell, then there's this process called osmosis, which will bring extra water in until the saltiness of the inside equals the saltiness of the outside. So basically, if you put a cell in a load of really salty water, all the ions, all the salts on the outside, so the water goes out, the water goes out to try and make the outside um, as dilute as the inside. And of course, that's a losing battle. So the cell shrivels up and dies. Uh, so, so actually, if you drink salty water, you become dehydrated. And there are some species that there is a brilliant, there's two classes of, of fish that do something really interesting here, which is that, and I could, they're, and that, I can never remember what they call it. It's like anadromous and catadromous. Someone's going to correct me. But salmon and eels are two examples of this. So, so eels are born in the ocean. So they are born surrounded oh by salt water. So all the pumps on their cells are continually uh, pumping salt out to get rid of it because they've got too much. Um, but then when they swim up a freshwater river, then the water around them hasn't got enough salt. So the pumps all have to switch. All the cells in their bodies switch around so the pumps are going the other way to pump salt in the opposite direction in order to go from fresh water to salt water and back again, which is why eels and salmon are amazing. It's not, they don't just happen to swim from the seawater to the freshwater. They have to change their entire biochemistry to deal with the fact that they're going from no salt uh, to lots of salt or the other way around. So the, the, to get back to the question, if you water your plants with salt, you'll just shrivel them up, which is why we use salt as a preservative um, to make um, pickles and bacon i'm not a bit i don't eat meat but i i gather bacon is preserved with salt um it's because it, it it's because it kills the cells so yes. thank you i hope that has answered your question and uh, uh atheist wanderer says here uh, catching up on old episodes and mark Miodovnik said that peanut butter is a liquid so they would like to know how is liquid defined is jam a liquid um this has been a point of much contention, including a serious paper that won the Ig Nobel Prize considering whether a cat was a liquid, because one of the definitions of liquid is that it fills up from the bottom the shape of the container you put it in. And people have these pictures of cats that have gone into an empty goldfish bowl and they're just, you know, I'm sure people have seen cats do this. They just kind of pour themselves into the space. And there was a genuine philosophical debate about whether a cat is a liquid because it seemed to satisfy all the criteria. Um, so when it comes to peanut butter, um, peanut butter crosses sort of there's there's a, a series of things that cross from one to the other so if you have really if you put peanut butter in the fridge it becomes quite solid and, and if you do that you could hold it upside down for a long time and it won't come out if you've got slightly softer peanut butter it will eventually pour out so i think that's what mark was referring to that if you can pour it um 
even on quite a slow time scale, it, it probably counts as a liquid. But there are these, there's a, there's a lot of things that you have to look at for a long, long, long time before they pour. And actually, Mark has one on his shelf in his office, which has probably dripped a bit further since we last saw him. But he's got a bitumen, which is dripping. Out. He put it there like maybe six years ago. And it, it's been slowly sliding over his bookshelf. So technically, it's a liquid. It's just doing it very, very slowly. But there isn't really a clear definition like that boundary. Uh, because sometimes you haven't got, you know, you know, 100 million years to watch something to check it hasn't moved. <laughs> it's quite an inconvenient experiment to do. So there, there's definitely a bit of a blurred line and it is a deeply philosophical question. So for, yes, it's um, good for contemplating, but I would get on with eating your peanut butter without worrying too much. I think that would be quite an important thing. But it's nice to pause over your peanut butter, isn't it? And just have a little thought experiment for a while before you, it, you know, burns off some calories. Now we've got a question from uh, Rose, and this is back to something we've talked about quite a lot this year, which is uh, about fossil fuel sponsorship. And uh, as some people will have seen recently, uh, that uh, new scientists decided to drop BP, I think, as a sponsor and a speaker as well, which is an interest. I mean, th this whole thing is quite uh, uh, an interesting area. We've, we've been talking about the fact that uh, the, the Science Museum in London had had three fossil fuel sponsors um and uh, and it's interesting because the new scientist thing is interesting as well because when helen and i did an event with them probably four or five years ago we did mention on stage both of us that we were slightly uncomfortable with the fact that a weapons manufacturer or defense company depending on the way you use semantics to cover up your trail um was sponsoring it and that apparently they were extremely unhappy that we said that on stage which i think is not a good thing because i think okay you take that sponsorship but don't then expect that you've also bought everyone's silence on this and that we should have a right to say something when, when especially we're on that for stage. A science especially for a science event where the whole point is having a debate the whole point of science is presenting evidence and coming to conclusions sorry to interrupt but you no, know fine. that is absolutely the point yeah they haven't asked either of us back, have they? <laughs> no, no, I don't. I, I don't think I'll be getting much coverage for the the, the new book, or certainly any positive coverage uh, from 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 them. Um, this is always an interesting because this is what Rose is actually. She's talking about that quandary, which is uh, you know understanding that. Uh, it, fossil fuel investment, especially in things like you know science museums, is is problematic. But then the question is that these places need constant investments to attract visitors, to pay bills, etc. And sadly, companies with the money to fund this are the ones who need or want to be part of greenwashing. Where do we get the constant flow of funding from without them? The smaller green companies don't have millions to throw at sponsorship, and uh, and so Rose just wondered in terms of you know what what do we do now? We've seen in the arts sector that many of them have moved on and found different uh, sponsors. Um, but of course, as, you, as, as Rose makes clear, you know, th these are companies with an enormous amount of, of, uh, of money. It's, it is really, and one of the things that makes it really difficult is the scale of the money they have is, is just usually far, far more than everybody else, which does tell you something actually, but anyway, um, and and it is a real problem, you know. I'm I'm a I have the privilege of being a trustee of Royal Museums Greenwich, so I see museum finances from the inside. And it is the case that the government uh, government funding of our national museums is is not as high as most people think. I think that is a fair thing to say. And um, museums are responsible for finding a lot of their own funding, and it is especially at the moment it's very very hard. But I think the approach. So so one thing is to, to say 
with my trustee hat on, one of my formal responsibilities as a trustee is not just to make sure that the national collections are looked after and that you know, the buildings don't fall down and all of that. It is to protect the reputation of the museum. And I think that trustees, and I think that's written into all the national museums. And I think that in this case, firstly, there is a there is reputational damage to be to be concerned about here. So that is a genuine thing that is not just about the money. Um, when it comes to the money itself, I think you wouldn't say it's okay to murder someone if a load of other people can go to a school with nicer wallpaper or something like that. And I, so we do make these decisions all the time in life that there are th some things we will not do because it's not appropriate. And I think it's made more complicated in the case of the Science Museum because it wasn't just that Shell gave them some money for an exhibition. They didn't just give the Science Museum some cash and say, you know, we've just put a load in your piggy bank, off you go. They gave them money for an exhibition on climate change. And this is a company that has a history. It actually specifically says in its shareholder report they are not going to do anything about climate change. And they, you know, there was the finding in the Netherlands that the court that found against them, and they have specifically said we are not going to change anything we do. Uh, we'll follow everybody else, but we're not going to lead. And because they have all the money and the power, they have more of a responsibility to actually take action on these things. They, you know, at Shell's uh, budget, I'll stop ranting about this in a second. Shell's budget is, at, I think, $180 billion a year. And last year, they offered to spend $1 billion on renewables and $80, million, $80 billion on fossil fuel you know, development of oil fields and stuff like that. So they are not taking this seriously. So Anyway, the answer of what, so I think the thing, the problem is that museums inevitably have some kind of moral responsibility, right? That, and, and I think this is, that money is just not available. Like, yes, there are other places to get money. It is really, really hard, but there are, um, there are wealthy donors. There are other companies. You can work with other organizations. There are ways to do it, but you just have to say that money's off limits. You know, if the mafia turned up and offered you 20 million quid, to launder some money, you wouldn't say yes. <laughs> so, so I think that there are other ways to find this money, and it is really, really hard. Um, but that's also part of a national responsibility to protect our heritage. So, so that's when it comes back to how much is the country via the government and taxation supporting museums. Um, and so, it's a, it's not an easy question, but there are definitely other places to find that money. Um, so yeah, but it is, but money, the money, money talks. And there's also this recent thing about the Sackler dynasty as well. You know, people might have read. There's a book, Empire, Empire of Pain, uh, just been written about um, the Sackler family, who have had a lot of art galleries named after them. And actually, those galleries are now being unnamed. Uh, I highly recommend the book. But it is really difficult. But the thing is, when there's a lot of money suddenly on offer, you have to ask a lot of questions about where it came from. Because if they're offering a lot more money than anyone else, there's probably a reason why. Um, so, yeah, and I think national museums are also not there just to be everyone's playthings. So, yeah, it, there is other money, but it is really hard. But that doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean we're going to stop having science museums. It just means we have to take seriously the other ways of finding funding. Um, but I know, and I know you found it difficult, Robin, this, you know, that, that we talked about this a lot at the time, that who, where does the responsibility sit, right? Is it, is it everyone's responsibility? Is there a point where you just go, oh, well, I can't change the system? And for you and me, it was that we're not comfortable with this. This this doesn't feel right. And 
we, we have a choice and we're going to choose not to. Um, yeah, but it, it's really, and I think there's going to be more of it because the other thing that I'll say this and then I'll stop ranting, sorry, is that a lot of these companies, the, the biggest problem is that what they, what the existing people at the top of the company really want is to get to the end of their careers intact and get out and leave the problem to somebody else. They don't want to change. They don't really want to change. Some, Some of them are doing better than others. Shell is not doing well. Um, and unless if they wanted to change and if they were actually changing, that's fine. We understand it takes time to rebuild infrastructure, but it's the not even they're not even taking the problem seriously. And that is the thing that I think means that, you know, you just cannot afford, like you're just helping them greenwash. And I think that is not that's not on. So, yeah, but it is really hard. Thank you. And that wasn't a rant at all. We need voices like yours, informed voices more and more out there because there's far too many poorly informed voices with a lot of column space who uh, write about these kind of can things. Can I say something else, actually? I just remembered on a different topic, which is that that book, Empire of Pain, I can say this because it's public now, but I am judging the Bailey Gifford Prize for nonfiction this year. And our long list was published uh, last week. Empire of Pain is on it. And the judging process is still going on. So I can't say too much about any of the books on there. But I do, if anyone is, needs some books to read, there are uh, 13 books on the long list. And I highly recommend looking at those and keeping an eye on the process. Because one of the joys of judging book prizes, it turns out, I've never done it before, is that um, people just turn up with all these amazing books and you do get like boxes i'm sure you i mean you got boxes of books anyway but if you judge the book prize out you'd, you'd lose them in your mountains of books but uh you know and they are really good books so people need some read uh, some good reading then keep an eye out for the shortlist and then the winner because there are some really amazing books on there yeah there's always been bailey gifford has always had a i, I think a fantastic um short and long list as well um now you, you mentioned pain so we'll move on seema age nine would like to know about how painkillers work you know how does it stop pain in your leg or your head how does it know where it hurts clever isn't it um so the short version is that there are messengers there are chemical and physical messengers that take a message from your toe if you've just stubbed your toe all the way up into your brain and there are quite a lot of stages along the way so first of all uh, and i'm not going to go into the biochemistry mostly because i don't know all the details but um you know you need for example certain chemicals to be formed at the site of pain you need enzymes to help move those chemicals along you need um signals to travel down nerves and so there are all of these pathways, but they're only activated when you have pain. So what the there are three classes of painkillers and what they do in their different ways is, is they stop. They act as a sort of roadblock at various places along that pathway. So for the opioids, it's towards the end for things like aspirin. It's near the beginning. But the point is that they stop any pain signals being sent. So it's not that the pain doesn't happen. It's that the, 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 me the messenger can't get to your brain. So basically, that's what they do, that they stop the messengers. So your brain never knows that it's that your body is in pain. Brilliant. Anywhere, Thank anywhere you. in the body. I hope that. Uh, the, this is an interesting one. Uh, Dale would like to know, is there any research into the sixth sense? For example, when I'm sitting at the traffic lights, how do I know the person in the car next to me is staring at me? Now, this is always an interesting because most of this is, as far as I can see, the, there's, there's not that much good kind of lab research in, in into this, but I might be wrong about that. Um, but that that idea that we as human beings often have this kind of uh, an, an instinct which we then see as being something which is perhaps some ways beyond the the uh, laws of physics so there are two there are two 
there are two parts to the answer and a, a neurologist might come up with more complicated ones. So I think neurologists do study this. And the first part of the answer is that um, our brain takes in a lot of information. It doesn't tell all of it to our consciousness, <laughs> which, you know, sounds, in fact, it tells a very small part of it to our consciousness. So, you know, if you've ever... Um, uh, if you've been somewhere, there's a hum in the background, for example, when you know you walk into the room, you go, oh, there's a hum, it's really annoying. Half an hour later, you've you've completely forgotten the hum exists because your brain is still taking in that information, but it's just decided it's not, it's not worth it. So it's not telling you about it. Um, so the first thing is that your, I think some of what the questioner is referring to is the idea that things are going on around you. And so maybe you're not looking over there, but you'll think a thing because something has been bumped up from your unconscious self into your consciousness and that makes you look to the right so so there so so i think part of it could be that and the other thing is that um there are there are kind of learned behaviors right we we we're good at anticipating what might happen and we really notice when it lines up so for example um my phone rang yesterday morning about 11 a.m and i was like oh that's my sister before I had looked at the phone or picked it up. But I know that if someone phones me at 11 a.m. on the on the Saturday morning, it's probably my sister. And so part of it is that we anticipate a lot and then we notice it. We go, oh, well, we thought that was going to happen. Um, and then if it's something really serious, we back, we look back and we say, oh, well, I knew that I, when she called, I felt there was something. There was, it, this call yesterday was fine, but she was calling about the dog. But, but you know, that she, um, you, you add a story afterwards to make sense of it and you only remember the ones where there's a good story to add so i don't think there's any evidence at all for any what what is conventionally thought of as a sixth sense but i do think that the things that our brains are doing that we don't appreciate and they only tell our our consciousness thinks it's very clever and is making all the decisions and all the judgments but actually there's a lot going on under the hood and i think a lot of it falls into that i mean this is probably something you you've spoken to a lot of neuroscientists for you know, for your latest book and for other things, have they, have, what, what's come back from them? Well, do you know what? I skipped over all that because that chapter became about 200 pages long, which is too long for a 400 page book, which is meant to have 12 chapters. But I think it, that, that's one of the things that fascinates me most, which is I think a lot of different ideas, which are sometimes studied by parapsychologists, et cetera, are really us trying to understand that the brain is so complex, as you said, so much of it we don't see and we don't hear and are brilliant at finding a pattern which is also a worrying thing for science, of course, as well for all of our studies, which is, you know, that, 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 that beautiful thing of, you know, you can't observe nature from outside of nature. And that idea that the fact that even the, the very best scientists working in worlds where they believe they can be as objective as possible, we are a creature that you can fight against as much, but there's so much going on in our brain, which goes, I found that, I remember Alan Moore talking about the, Steve Moore, his friend who died a few years ago, his dream diary, and he wrote very, very all of these very, and I, and I think that is one of those things sometimes where when more people write the dream diary, the more they're able to recall their dreams, and there's lots of different activity, and his final dream was very similar to the incident that then happened for when he was found after he died. And there were certain little things, the coincidences that happened to get. And that's the, you know, and when you look at it, it does feel remarkable. But then you wonder how much of a human trick is being played on us all the time. So it is, I, 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 and I think you're right about the under the bonnet thing, which is if we could hear everything that's going on, all of the noises of the machine, <laughs> then we wouldn't move. And we would probably have to jump out of a window because it would be deafening, wouldn't it, to take in every part of a picture. And I think we do impose, it's a bit like when you, you, you briefly see someone 
and maybe the shape of their face or the shape of their hair is similar to a friend of yours. And you therefore then in your mind, this is why eyewitness accounts are so terrible, is in your mind, you very quickly fill in that person's face. And it's quite similar to that other person, you know, and then eventually you might look at them when you get on the tube and you go, that person looks nothing like I thought they looked. My <laughs> brain did a quick leap going, I'll just I'll sketch this in for you. There we go. Sketched it in. So I think that bit of filling in the picture uh, with as many shortcuts as possible is a very interesting part of it as well. But then pattern recognition pattern recognition is so good. So this next, this is going to sound a bit weird, right? I promise it's not as weird as it sounds. So I've, I'm, I play badminton a lot and um, there's a, a club I've been playing at for several years. And I walked, when you walk into the club, you can kind of see the bottom of the court. So you can see everyone's legs. There's a, there's a moment where you can kind of see everyone's legs, but you can't see their top halves. And um, a few years ago, I walked into the club and I was like, oh, and I shan't use his name, but I was like, oh, that's this friend. And I hadn't seen him. It was someone I played badminton with at university that I hadn't seen for maybe 10 or 15 years. And um, within a second of seeing these, this pair of legs on the court, my brain was like, it's him. And it was him. And and it was one of those things where like I never noticed his legs before. <laughs> this sounds awful, right? But I'd never noticed it. But your bodies are, you know, on the badminton court, everyone does move differently, and your legs are an important part of how you play. So it is very distinctive. But it was so quick, and I was right. And I, without, you know, I had no reason to think he would be there. But my brain had the pattern; it matched up the pattern correctly after fifteen years. Um, and so we are capable of quite a when you think about that, that had to be held somewhere in cells. That, that's the bit that I never understand. I that yeah. really is because I have that obviously with with movies. I will see a split second, walk into a room, split second. And uh, I'll say, oh, is that that that's this film, isn't it? And my dad, whatever, go, how do you know that? And I go, I don't know, because it's not a film that I've seen for 30 years. It's not a film that I love. But somewhere in my mind is this strange little NFT catalogue of everything, yeah. which is of no use whatsoever. No, no pragmatic use. Um, and I, I, I'm always where memories are, uh, are kept and how that works and what is required to fire all of those to suddenly, I suppose, to regroup that pattern that existed 30 or 40 years ago. And suddenly that pattern happens again. But we haven't got time for that. My God, this no. is exactly why the chapter on the brain was a disaster uh, in terms of editing. Um, so let's... Uh, um uh, I Petroni would like to know, uh, I know this is probably really basic, you never have to say that because none of these questions are ever basic. The moment that they start, they always go off into so many worlds, so do not worry about that. Uh, I don't understand how it's possible to have an electric field in a vacuum. Uh, I, will, I will try to be brief this one, with this one because the, the you, you can go into all sorts of subtleties here, but basically um, every place in space or in space-time, if you want to think about it like that, has some properties. Uh, and an electric field is one of those things. So at every point in space time, there's a there's a little arrow. It's not a real little arrow, but a little arrow that's got a length, which tells you how strong it is and a direction that it's pointing in. And that's what a field is. It's it, it, a field in general is that every point in space has this. It, it, it's got the potential to have this thing. And in a lot of space, um, it's just zero for an electric field. Uh, but if it has to, it can change. And so the time it might change is if you put an electric charge nearby and then we know an electric charge has a field around it. But actually, the field was there all the time. It's just that it was zero. And that that charge has made all those points. It's suddenly given those little arrows a place to point in a direction to point in. So, so the answer really is that the electric field is there all the time. It's just zero quite a lot of the time. 
But when it gets a kick and when something next to it changes, like when the charge um, or another bit of an electric field moves, it has to move in response. And it's the response that we see as an electric field. But it is there all the time. And it can exist in a vacuum because it's just a, a property of space time. I think it's just a thing that you can have in space time. There is a field everywhere in the universe. Um, so you don't need you don't need atoms in order to have electric fields. So so and a vacuum is just a place with no atoms. That Brilliant. May or may not Thank help. you. I hope that has helped. Um, Ollie would like to know mobile phones can't really interfere with flight equipment, can they? Why do we have to have airplane mode? Now, this is an interesting one because, of course, we had a similar thing with petrol stations as well, where there was always turn off your mobile phone because otherwise it might create a spark. And Mythbusters did a big thing, I think, uh, on that. All I of think these different for, ideas. For very, very early, early mobile phones, there might have been a danger of a spark. But I think in more recent years, probably not. Um, so the thing about uh, aircraft, all electric, um, electromagnetic signals like that is that there is this thing called tuning, which is very useful because it means you can have lots of different sizes of wave going past you, but you can only detect the ones that are exactly the right size. And if you look at mobile phones now, if you look at the frequencies they work at, I can't remember exactly what the frequency is, but the distinction between one mobile phone tower and another is like six decimal places or something, maybe five. It's 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 really detailed and your mobile phone is exactly like 38.35984 and that is the frequency. And if you go one step away from that, um, it doesn't detect it anymore. So the, re the original reason I think was that it was thought that having cell towers and all these electric signals would sort of push into the frequencies that the planes were using, not just to navigate, but just the systems on the plane. And I think there was a cautiousness about that. And now we know that that is not the case, that um, the, you know, the frequencies are so far apart that they're, they're probably not going to interfere with one another. Um, I don't think I don't know why you're still asked to turn them off when, you know, because sometimes you land and you can turn phones on straight away. So I don't think there's any reason uh, to turn them off when you're flying apart from it just it's just a cautious thing, right? There's so many things that people are so cautious about planes. You don't want your plane to be the one day when the thing did interfere with this other thing and then there was a problem. So I think it's a good precautionary principle, but I don't think there's a specific thing it's going to interfere with. But you don't want someone's phone to go wrong and start broadcasting at the wrong frequency and then for that to cause a problem. So I think it's a precaution. And the other thing with uh, mobile phones on planes is ensure that the last tweet that you put out before you turn off your phone is as innocuous as possible. Uh, because I think everyone has had, if any, anyone has read, for instance, uh, John Ronson's book, uh, You've Been Publicly Shamed, you know, that, that bit where you go, oh, my God, this has been misunderstood for 10 hours while I've been in the air. Um, final questions about poo. Um, not well poo though, this time. Uh, this is from Michelle. This is uh, there's a lot of dog poo about. Uh, can which is can we use it for anything? Uh, the growth grossness of collecting it all aside. Now this is an interesting thing as well because I wonder. You know the the carnivore poo appears to be less useful, for instance, in cultivation and stuff like that. We did touch on this because somebody asked whether they could put dog poo on their gardens, I think, probably six months ago, somewhere in those. I'm still struggling with the idea. We've done 70 of these shows. It's just become part of my life. But anyway, um, <laughs> um, so I think that um, the uh, thing I had an answer at the time to this and I can't, can't quite remember what it is. I don't think there's very much you can do with dog poo when it comes to 
carnivore poo doesn't appear to be a very good fertilizer. And I did know the reason for that. And I can't remember what it is, <laughs> but it's got a lot less cellulose in it and it's got a lot less fibrous stuff. And um, presumably it's got a lot less, although well, it would presume that protein is quite high in nitrogen and phosphorus. Maybe the dog's up. I don't know a lot about what's in dog, what's left. I don't know which bits of a, an animal a dog doesn't digest. That's a probably more accurate statement. I should find that out. But as I said, my sister's dog seems to eat carrots. So presumably it could, its poo could go in a garden. I don't know. Um, so is there anything else we could do with it? Well, people do use poo for, I mean, you can burn it, for example, if because otherwise it would decompose, the carbon would go into the atmosphere anyway. So there are places where people have, burned i mean in the past people burned manure as a source of fuel um probably out of fashion today because of the air pollution caused i would say for that um i think also the smell of uh, i think it's sex panther in the film anchorman the aftershave yeah i i i think it's uh, described I, actually i won't even say how it's described because i know children are watching but it involves bigfoot's feces and burnt hair well, I think I think the answer, which is probably an appropriate one to finish on, is I don't really know. So we can all go away and do our research. Yeah, I'd avoid <laughs> that research. Let's out. just move on. Yeah, that, that, that's where we'll, we'll skip that one. Um, thank, thank you very much, Helen, for all of and uh, we still got a few left over, so we'll try and put those in to the shows that are coming up. As I said, we're going to uh, not do a, a, a weekly now 10 a.m. Uh, live show, but we will be aiming to put out uh, new science stuff at 10 a.m. every Sunday. Some of them will be pre-recorded interviews with uh, scientists and uh, authors. Some of them also, as I said, if you've got uh, things that you'd like us to look into or we can make some specials as well and stuff like that, um, send them to CosmicShambles.com or, or send them to our, our Twitter or wherever and uh, and we'll make a series of, uh, of of short films and we will still have i think at least once a month we will be doing uh, the live science q a as well um so thank you very much everyone for joining as i said if you are able to support us by by patreon and you don't already patreon.com slash cosmic shambles where we make tips for existence and uh, and all of the other shows including all, all of this stuff and then a new series of uncanny hour coming up and and uh, further episodes of uh, the series of book you might not know uh the latest can I episode interrupt of that, before you finish yeah, you when, sure when you're almost at the end of your plan yeah I've got go something on else, which is that um and maybe you were going to say this but i say this but i just want to make really sure is that um you know you and i uh, and lots of guests have been here at 3 p.m and then at 10 a.m for 18 months and a lot of people have been with us and you know they're listening to us some of them we're listening to us now some of them will be listening to us later but um whoever you are you know we hope we hoped we helped you deal with the weird world that we faced and and it, you helped us because we also had something to do and it's a, it's a big teamwork thing. So we're very grateful to the rest of the team. So I just want to say thank you to everyone who's been listening and who will continue to listen to all the things that Robin has been talking about. But it seems like a good time to, to really say thank you to our audience because we really appreciate appreciate you being here as well. And we have had very regular with the questions as well. An incredible variety of questions that come in from an incredible variety of ages as well, which is brilliant. That's one of the things that I, I've always wondered about that, though. I've wondered if someone sometimes goes, oh, I didn't get my question asked for the last three weeks. What if I just pretend to be aged eight, which is always a good trick if you are ever uh, at a science Q&A event. Um, if you're not aged eight, pretend you're aged eight. Um, and uh, so I might see some of you might be at the Canterbury. Uh, the, I'm, I'm doing the final warm up show with uh um brian cox tonight in uh in, in in canterbury helen what are you up to i am making a radio program about the uh sir david attenborough which is the uk's new polar research vessel the boat at boat face um the ocean matters podcast is still out we've just done one on manta rays 
which was very exciting. And uh, I'm still writing my book, which isn't finished yet. <laughs> so right. Well, I will. Uh, um, yeah. And I'll, I'll be off doing this uh, this uh, 111 uh, date tour where uh, I know an extra date's just been added for uh, Mount Florida Books in, in Glasgow. The first uh, um, show sold out very quickly. But I'll also be in uh, Manchester at the Anthony Burgess uh, Foundation on the 8th of October. And on the 10th of October, I will be in uh, Carlisle at the Borderlands Festival. But there's loads. They're all up at Cosmic Shambles as well, all the different places I'm going. Thank you very much to uh, producer uh, Trent Burton, who produces all of the stuff that we make at uh, Shambles and puts a huge amount of effort in. And uh, have a lovely weekend and have a lovely week. Uh, we hope to see you again soon. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.